the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In his book, Mornings on Horseback, David McCullough tells this story of a young Teddy Roosevelt. Mitty, his mother, had found that he was so afraid, Teddy that is, of the Madison Square Church that he refused to set foot in it alone. He was terrified of what she discovered he called the zeal. It was crouched in the dark corners of the church and might be ready to jump out at him at any given moment. When she asked him what the zeal was, he said he wasn't quite sure. It was probably a large animal like an alligator or a dragon, and he'd heard the minister reading about it in Scripture. So his mother, using a concordance, looked up zeal and began to read to him the passages which contained it. And suddenly and very excitedly, he stopped her and said that was it. And it was the line we have this morning from John's Gospel in the King James, which reads, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And therein was Teddy's fear of the Lord. In many ways, that may be true of us as well and may elicit from us a similar response, and rightly so, because at many times we see Jesus in his life and ministry as meek and mild, and at times we forget who Jesus truly is. In fact, if I may share another illustration that I think does this some justice, comes from C.S. Lewis's work, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He describes this very attribute of Jesus in Aslan, that Christ figure in his work. And as Susan is about to meet Aslan the first time, one of the characters in his work, Susan is talking to Mr. Beaver about what this will look like, and it reads this way. Aslan, Mr. Beaver says, is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I'd feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. In many ways, we do well to remember those words that Jesus is indeed good, but he's not safe. And Scripture does not leave us any room for that, and Lent reminds us of that. And if we would but walk with Jesus, we discover that. And this morning in this turning of tables juncture that we've just heard in John 2 that I'd invite you to open up to in your Bible if you have it, uh, or to follow along in person on the screens, I believe we discover three lessons that assist us in reflecting on how Jesus is indeed good but he's not safe, as he's always seeking to turn tables in our lives as well. This passage, to get a bit of context, opens as John tells us the Passover is at hand. And that's key for several reasons. It's not just merely an orientation to where they are in the year, while it includes that, nor is it merely the reason that Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem while it includes that. But it would serve to explain something far deeper about Jesus that unfolds in these verses. 
from your own biblical knowledge, of course, you know that the Passover is the annual celebration that um, the Jewish people held to mark a moment, a moment when God's outstretched arm delivered them from captivity in Egypt and brought them ultimately into the promised land where they reside. And each Jew, according to the law and their calendar, was to make at least one annual visit um, to Jerusalem and for that festival, to mark that moment in a feast, and whereby they would make atonement or reparation for their sins through temple sacrifice. And so, um, this whole bit about um, money changers and animals being the temple was, was quite a convenient thing, really. Because in Jesus' day, if you had to travel from all over the country to get to Jerusalem for an annual visit, this gave you one less thing to worry about. You didn't have to bring the animals for sacrifice or some of the things that you might need. You knew you could procure those um, once you arrived. But Jesus is reminding them that they are under God's judgment, not so subtly, because they've lost their way. While they were doing the right things, while they were um, going about the things that God had called them to do, um, they had lost sight of what it was all about. And we do well, as we look at this text, to remember that both Jerusalem and the temple was more than just a church, as we think of it, a place of worship. But it was a place for market. It was a place um, for politics. It was a place for meeting. It was a place for a hub of life together. And while that could be good, it had overshadowed the reason for which the temple stood. And so Jesus, as we read, quite literally clears the temple of everything that stands in the way of their relationship with God. And we do well to ponder on that for just a moment, too. So there's a beautiful reminder, while we're generations removed and on another side of the world, and even in a new covenant, um, Jesus is always seeking to turn tables in our lives in order to draw us nearer to himself as well, clearing those things out of our hearts and lives that are barriers to him. And so perhaps just a helpful turn of phrase to assist us in reflecting on that, um, and a first lesson is these turning tables moments happen when um, Jesus is turning rules into relationship. And here's what I mean by that. The law or the rule in Jesus' day dictated they did certain things according to their rhythm with the Lord. But it had become so legalistic that by the time Jesus is clearing the temple, instead of walking inside the temple to pray and seek God's will, they pressed into conversations seeking the wisdom of man in the temple courts. Instead of being penitential as these sacrifices would remind them, um, they pressed and perused into the marketplace to find the best and cheapest price for the animals that they would need to go inside. And the lowest exchange rate that was required to um, give the temple tax that didn't bear the image of the Roman emperor. They'd lost their way. They gathered not to petition the Lord for freedom inside the temple, but they gathered to plot their own freedom from Rome and other rulers outside the temple gates. You see, they'd reduced their relationship to God to something that was no more than kind of a mere transaction a keeping of the rules of the law, and um, the rest was theirs to figure out. And so too with us at times, because it's human nature. And Jesus is always seeking to turn the tables in our hearts and lives, um, in our understanding of Him, um, and in the ways that we clutter our lives with so much else, 
rather than seeing the relationship that he desires first and foremost. For us, that legalism can be, I must pray at certain times or certain periods of time, or, or I only have this much time to do that. It can mean that um, I only have so much time in the week. God, here is your time on Sundays or midweek or wherever we may um, deign that. Um, we, we give our 10% and think we've done our dues. Whatever those things may be, we can kind of reduce the relationship to kind of a legal transaction with God, realizing that if, if we truly pursue Him, Jesus is good, but Jesus is not safe. And no aspect of our lives, no corner of our hearts will be safe from His turning of tables to clear room for Him to draw nearer to us. And so we reflect on that, and we look at our hearts and lives and say, if we would follow Him, nothing is safe or sacred or somehow off limits. But this isn't just the only lesson, I believe, that we find. If we turn back to verse 17, we discover um, one more. As the disciples, in looking to this passage, um, back in verse 17, cite Psalm 69, it's a quote of Psalm 69, and recognizing, of course, this passage with I opened from uh, an illustration that zeal for thy house has eaten him up. They recognize what's going on right there. And so they rightly, as they gather, remember, are asking, why does Jesus do this? What's going on? And what sign can he give um, to bring that to pass? Remember once more that in this passage, the Passover is occurring, so it's not just the normal folks in Jerusalem. It's not just the religious leaders of the day, but there's countless people that are gathered and behold this, that perhaps haven't even encountered Jesus up to this point. So they want to know, who are you and why do you do these things? What is this all about? And Jesus' response, as we see, is, is rather cryptic. He answers in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in that response, their reply is, that's impossible. But it's impossible in more ways than they actually realize, as we've come to see. But this wasn't the first time the temple had been destroyed. As you know from Scripture, it had been destroyed before. It had taken them 46 years to complete and two kings to bring it to pass. But they utterly miss in this moment what Jesus is laying out before them, namely that the very reason for which they're gathered in Jerusalem at the Passover, serving to remind them of their freedom, Jesus is now applying that to himself, namely that his body, the temple, where the glory of God resides, God incarnate, would be torn down upon the cross, and everything that they knew about the Passover would be shifted and embodied in Jesus. And as Jesus clears the temple of all these symbols and signs, he clears the way for what God purposes to do, both literally and figuratively. That as he is torn down upon the cross, he would be the ultimate sacrifice that would take away the sins of the whole world. The imagery is quite rich, and we won't uh, be able to do it justice this morning, but it's worth some reflection and prayer in the midst of your week. And while those gathered can't quite fully grasp the meaning of what's going on here at the time, um, 
they aren't really even open to hearing it. They have their own assumptions about how um, this kingdom of God would be established. They have their own agendas, their own bias that they bring to the scriptural text, and it besets them as they're trying to listen to what Jesus says. And I think perhaps there's a subtle second reminder uh, for us as we reflect on this. Not only is Jesus turning tables from rules to relationship, clearing everything out of the way that would stand in relationship to him. But he's also, and I'm going to throw a couple technical terms at you here, turning eisegesis into exegesis. And here's what I mean by that. Those are big words that are quite simple, really. Um, Eisegesis is when we go to Scripture reading our own agendas and bias into Scripture. It's when we um, go to Scripture and lift out what we want to see in Scripture. Sorry, slides aren't working here. Sorry, gals in the back. Um, They look at that. Our culture does this. It goes to Scripture with all the things in the world around us and says, how do we make sense of the world? And let's kind of pull things out of Scripture to um, give us some idea and some um, context for that. And they hear what they want, just as those in Jesus' day did. They were familiar with it, and they were looking forward to what that would fulfill. And so, by contrast, exegesis is where we sit under the text. We allow the text in its context, in its rightful meaning, in its interpretation to speak to us first. And only when we fully have digested that do we get to that final question of, what does it mean for me? Now, the danger that a lot of Christians fall into is they think to do exegesis, they need a stack of commentaries, or they need degrees, they need someone to sit under to do that. And while we do need guideposts, and those are good, um, the same Holy Spirit that reveals to those commentators all the depth of knowledge is the same Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And really what it requires most is a relationship with God and a willingness to sit and spend the time to hear what God says. And then, yes, Go to the context and read in the commentaries what others have said. But you might be surprised that if you've done some work there, you might discover the very same things in your own time with the Lord and Scripture that someone with, you know, five letters at the end of their name and degrees and PhDs and doctorates in divinity and da-da-da-da-da have written for you to read. And so that's why things like community Bible study and other resources are so needed, because they keep that at stay. It's good to read those things. It's good to digest those things. But more than anything, it's good to wrestle in relationship with the Lord in the living and breathing Word of God and come to discover what He reveals to you in your own heart. And then to be guided and reformed and revised where may be needful after having done so. And there's one last lesson, I believe, back at the end in verse 22 that is one for us to reflect on as well. It's almost an addendum. Really, the story ends in verse 21. That's the actual real-time moment. Verse 22 is John looking back after the resurrection, after all that has passed, after Jesus has been crucified, after he rose from the dead, after John is pinning all that he had seen and heard, he looks back and gives us what almost sounds like an aside. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, we read, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's beautiful. Only after the fact do they have this revelation. It didn't make sense at the time because it hadn't happened. But I think there's a simple point for us to reflect upon about time itself. Not only is Jesus turning tables, 
turning rules into relationships, turning eisegesis into exegesis as he's working on our hearts and how we approach his living word. But he also changes and reforms time itself, as only God can do. And he turns chronos time into kairos time. And by that I mean this. We live life chronologically. Days bleed into months that bleed into years. Um, we can't fast forward and see what the future holds, although right now it'd be great. Um, we can't rewind and fix the things we wish we could do. Um, we can only look back and reflect. And yet God himself stands outside of time because he created time itself. He doesn't live in a chronological way. He ordains times and seasons and divine moments that he can appoint things to happen. And when we walk with Jesus, we discover that he can do the extraordinary. Sometimes you may be struck by a passage in Scripture that you just can't let go of. You write it down somewhere, and years later, not just months as it was for the disciples, you realize why that was the case. Or God himself can actually reach into the past and our hurts and hang-ups and, and issues and heal and restore and redeem those things in a way that we can never do, no matter how many times we replay it in our own lives. Kairos time, God's time, he can appoint times and seasons for things to happen, and we begin to lead life differently if we live with him. And as we walk with him, and as we're reminded of all of this, we're reminded, of course, Jesus is good, but he's not safe. Nothing is off limits. But I'll tell you, and I can look you in the eye and tell you this, that I'd rather take the risky life of following Jesus any day of the week than the predictable or somewhat predictable, as we used to think a year ago, um, life that we lead on our own strength. And as we press into this midway point in Lent, and as we're called next week to begin to lift up our gaze and reflect upon Jesus hanging upon the cross, we're reminded that this is a life we're called to as Christians, one where Jesus is always turning tables in our hearts and lives, one where, as we're reminded today, he'll remove everything that stands in his way turning rules into relationships, turning eisegesis into exegesis, conforming our hearts to his will and not allowing us to try to conform ourselves, um, or rather him, to ourselves. And finally, that he indeed changes time itself. When we look at the world and we lead life differently, not just years that bleed into eons and decades, but one as God has appointed times and seasons for the things he purposes to do in us. So following Jesus is indeed good, but it is not safe. Pray that you and I will step more fully into such a pursuit this day in the areas that God is turning tables in your hearts to make more room for him, and that as we do so, we may make more room for others to come to know him as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.